equals spin The propaganda's win Stress feeding on my attention My countrymen, they love their fiction Words are now This made with good intentions Welcome to One of Two Hundred, the independent media and politics podcast here in Aotearoa. Midweek uh, issues podcast for you this evening, uh, today, whenever you are listening to this. I'm joined by Lee Clement agriculture campaigner Christine Rose from Greenpeace Aotearoa. How are you doing? Kia Katie Pai. Thank you. There's been a lot happening uh, in Aotearoa this year in relation to the direct impacts of climate on the landscape, on the environment, and on people in this country with the high amount of rainfall uh, in uh, significant parts of the country, as well as the the damage that's been caused by that. Uh, It's happened uh, during a time when we're moving into an election period. And at the moment, it feels as if a lot, despite all of that, a lot of the stuff hasn't really been showing up in any of the political news or coverage. Uh, the major parties aren't really engaging with it to any extent. Greenpeace uh, and a large range of other organisations have started a campaign called Climate Shift uh, to try and bring some of this into the public and political discourse. I, I guess, how do you want to start this? Like, It's, it's a huge set of issues. Um, there's so much happening right now in this space. A, a whole bunch of people are, as I said, directly impacted by this. Why do you think it's not really showing up yet um, as a, an election issue? Uh, and what, is, what are you hoping to do with Climate Shift to, to change that? Thanks, Kyle. Um, well, uh, it's um, been devastating to see the impacts of Cyclone Gabriel and other storm events that have been made worse because of climate change. And even in my own communities, there are still more than 100 families that are out of their homes because of landslides, the landslides that killed two volunteer firefighters um, and created huge amounts of trauma. And uh, that's just here in West Auckland. Um, Other friends have suffered three floods in 18 months. Um, and we've seen what's happened at Tairafati and other parts of the Motu. And uh, so that, that's the, the wet weather cyclone record rainfall events. And then uh, in the South Island, we've had three droughts in three years and they just keep getting worse. So it's really clear uh, that climate change is hitting home and the impacts are severe, disastrous, traumatic really expensive for people and for New Zealand. And, um, you know, the indicators are that, you know, we have really six years to um, get on top of our emissions and to bring emissions down so that we can stay within the 1.5 degrees warming that was agreed as a maximum target in the Paris Accord. And it's clear that governments around the world are not doing what's needed to achieve that. Um, and <laughs> yet people are desperate um, and will become increasingly desperate and we're seeing the impacts of climate change on food supply, food security, um, you know, lives and livelihoods. And it's an election year, so you would think that given that climate change has been in, um, in among the top considerations and concerns for New Zealanders, that it should be on the political agenda 
uh, but there's been this move to the centre, this sort of moderate, um, conservative, well, it's not moderate, it's conservatism, um, but it's it's really quite right-wing, neoliberal, uh, and scared of touching the main polluters. And uh, in New Zealand, those main polluters are intensive dairy and Fonterra. Um, because half of our emissions come from industrial agriculture and a quarter come from dairy cattle alone and about a, um, an additional fifth come from Fonterra with its coal burning and transport um, to dry all that dairy into milk powder that's exported to become confectionery, mostly. So, um, <clears throat> you know, at a time when the climate crisis is really real and really scary, um, and it is election year, you'd think that there would be some wins for political parties to centre issues on the climate crisis and to uh, achieve real emissions reductions and remove some of the, that pollution. And it's interesting because, you know, we saw recently in Australia that grassroots movements and mobilisation did mm. centre and make a difference to the election outcome uh, by focusing on climate change. And... You know, I mean, the results of that, I guess, are yet to be seen, but um, there, there is this opportunity, a political moment. And uh, so Greenpeace and this coalition of more than 40 other organisations is hoping to achieve um, a climate election and to shift the balance of power. Um, and at the moment, that balance of power is being held by the minor parties. Uh, we know that we're not going to get any climate action from ACT, uh, but it's really important. What do that... you mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, is that an unfair analysis? <laughs> <laughs> not at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think I think that's, that's realistic. Um, but, you know, we, we're not looking like we're going to see um, any of the necessary proportionate response from Labour or National either. Um, and I can talk more about that later. But um, so, you know, it, it is going to be really important that we have a strong position in coalition bottom line from Tea Party Māori and from the Green Party. And, uh, you know, we saw the Green Party with their like 42 page manifesto released um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and that's all great. But it's what's really going to make the difference is what they take to the negotiating table um, after the election. So we do need this to be a climate election because our future depends on it. Um, and that's why these groups, all of us, and so far 11,000 other New Zealanders have signed on to the Climate Shift campaign. And Climate Shift is, has got three main strands, real emissions reductions, and I'll talk more about that, um, uh, supporting frontline communities, and that's obviously more important than ever, um, both domestically but also in the Pacific, and rewilding and restoring nature. And they are all key elements of an appropriate and proportionate response to the climate crisis. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting, I use this term interesting in the uh, pejorative sense, um, space to be having a discussion in because as soon as you start making claims around uh, emissions reductions, for example, uh, immediately all these incredibly bad faith arguments are made um, and they seem to just flood uh, any of these issues out of the public discourse. Um, I, I guess one of the main ones is, oh, what what hope uh, does New Zealand have? Why, why make it an issue, an election issue for New Zealand when uh, this isn't going to help uh, the rest of the world? Like, it's, it, we, we'll barely make a dent. And then you, you know, look at these other strands, like supporting frontline communities, 
okay, yes, um, e- even if true, uh, what about uh, mitigation? You know, what well, what about uh, ensuring that the infrastructure and communities that we have are resilient to uh, these things should the worst come to pass? Well, maybe not should the worst come to pass because if that happens, it doesn't matter anymore. But, you know, with, with the escalation and, and weather events, how do you generally push back on that kind of stuff? And it's not something I'm, I'm interested in playing devil's advocate for, but just in terms of for our audience and, and for you as a campaigner, when that stuff starts to get spouted at you, how do you move past that? It's a good point because, um, you know, the polluters have very slick PR machines and um, they're really good and the media, um, conventional media, amplify these messages. You know, we're feeding the world um, Paris oh. agreements. <laughs> <laughs> we're feeding the world a whole lot of junk food, uh, you know, um, and I suppose also that it, a lot of this stuff comes from these um, very fundamental uh, and original uh, in terms of colonial um, ideology and narratives about, you know, we were the farm of the empire. Um, and so so a lot of these things are hardwired into the Kiwi narrative and, and the power of farming and uh, the farm industry um, and, you know, like, as if it's all hokey and, you know, we're all just down on the farm and we're farming the way we used to. Um, you know, because, like, in actual fact, we didn't used to have farms with 1,000, 1,500 cows. You know, farmers didn't own 8, 10, you know, uh, 65 farms like some of New Zealand's richest um, families own now. Yeah, farmers uh, so- were farm workers previously and not uh, whatever they are. Yeah, speculators and investors. And, um, you know, my, my parents were farm workers and, you know, I grew up on a farm and so I had a real life experience of what it was like for those farm workers um, who were at the bottom of the food chain, um, you know, on shit wages, living in, in shit conditions while the farm owners lived on the in the mansion on the hill with their swimming pool. Um, and so uh you know and the animals caught up in these systems and all the rest of it you know so um i i know what that was like and um and it's got even worse since then so these narratives that the industry trots out um you know so we we try not to weigh into those debates but at the same time these arguments that we um we're too small to make a difference well actually we're the sixth worst polluter um in the oecd um uh over a hundred countries pollute less than we do. Um, so when when the industry says, "Oh, you know, we're just polluting a fraction," and what about China and India? Um, you know, as if the problem is these Chinese um, and Indian subsistence farmers, rather than these industrial corporates who ha- are extending, um, you know, have been offshoring their impacts to India and China and um, South America. You know. Um, and also are dependent on input, for example, imported feed that are destroying those yeah. economies and those ecologies. So, you know, it is it, there are certainly ways to unpick these narratives, um, and and we're happy to do that. Uh, but at the same time, we we do try and avoid getting um, looped Drawn into... In. Yeah, because that's yeah. part of it, right? That's part of the what's trying to be done. It's like if it's just like if you're on Twitter or something or social media and someone tries to start an argument with you, the whole the whole purpose is not to necessarily win that argument. Um, that's right. As to yeah. take up your time fighting it, uh, yeah. because then you're not 
trying to get your own message across. Yeah, yeah, they're real distractions. Um, and there are audiences that we will never convince and we're not even going to bother trying to convince them. Um, you know, we, we need to speak truth to power. And, um, yeah, I think that, you know, through creative tactics um, and people power, you know, Greenpeace has proven that that can be effective. And we only have to look at the oil and gas ban uh, and, you know, even the plastic bag ban um, that people said was too difficult. It was critical yeah. to the modern way of life. Um, we, you know, we were economic and social saboteurs. Um, and, you know, and, and now people go, oh, yeah, of course. And, and life is better for those things having been banned. Um, and yet, of course, as we go up to the election, um, the National Party are seeking to overturn that oil and gas ban and, you know, a number of the other hard-earned um, gains that have been made yeah. through activism and the work of organisations like Greenpeace and People Power. Just so, like, as an aside as well, um, what really shocks me about that, you know, almost like US Republican-style rhetoric, although the Democrats are opening oil up as well now, so... Maybe that's a misnomer. Um, although they are kind of tapping into that here to some extent, it's not really for the prosperity of the country like they claim. Most of that stuff in, in the New Zealand sense in terms of extraction goes directly overseas. Yeah, it's really interesting, um, you know, because when you even take a cursory look at who owns industrial dairy in New Zealand, it's, um, you know, speculators and investors. It's not the family farmers it's not the um you know these these local food producers these are industrial systems and 96 percent of um dairy products um developed here in new zealand at the cost of our rivers our climate um you know biodiversity and public health 96 percent of those products are sent overseas we are now the most export oriented economy in the world um, and it means that we're, you know, like in the past, Southland produced 80% of its food and it was mixed crops, it mm -hmm. was cereals and grains. And now mostly it's dairy and they're importing the crops and the cereals and the grains yeah. and also importing a whole lot of other bad stuff, you know, like nationally, um, you know, confectionery. And, you know, so we're exporting milk powder that becomes confectionery. Which we import offshore. back. Yeah, yeah. And it comes back to that, the, the kind of increasing risk of food insecurities as climate change occurs, right? Yeah, and we're really seeing that, you know, both in terms of disrupted supply chain routes, but also um, disrupted production. And we know that farmers are among the worst and the first affected by climate change. And um, and often, you know, like there has been this drive to increase um, uh, agricultural production in marginal areas that, you know, so on river riverbanks and floodplains and in the high country um, and in swamps. And, and, you know, so these are environments that would have provided capacity for mitigate against, to mitigate against the impacts of climate change and, um, you know, increased volatility and extremity of weather events. Um, but so there's all this industrial farming that's happening in there. And then when the fences get flooded out or the cattle get washed away, um, you know, the industries there saying, oh, well, actually, we need government help and, you know, they're not helping us enough and we want more millions of dollars to address this. And the government trots along with its checkbook and, you know, writes another big check for more millions of dollars that we're paying for. Um, and we see this even in the instruments of the state, things like the um, Emissions Reduction Plan and the Climate Emergency Response Plan, where the bulk of that money um, that the industry, the dairy industry, has paid nothing 
four, because they're exempt from the emissions trading scheme, um, that the bulk of that money goes back into the agricultural sector for techno fixes or you know various schemes to um, allow them and enable them to continue doing what they're doing um, when a responsible government would actually change the system and help this industry transition to a way of farming that worked with instead of against nature. And that looks like more plant-based agriculture and regenerative organic ways of farming. Yeah, and that um, kind of segues us into some of the 10-point plan as well. Uh, we're covered off a couple of uh, things in, in the subject matter, but maybe we should just like start going through that and, and make sure we actually hit all of them uh, during this episode because I think each of them is uniquely important, right? And uh, I guess the, the this 10-point this plan is what you'd like uh, the next government or to implement, but in lieu of that, uh, looking to bring these issues into the election campaign. Yeah, and I think it's sort of in the reverse order. You know, we'd like to bring these issues into the election campaign. Um, we're calling on all political parties to sign up and um, and then that it must shape the agenda mm-hmm. for the future government. And um, so they address those those three broad themes, as I've mentioned, real emissions reduction, supporting frontline communities and restoring and rewilding nature. And they sort of um, work on, it's not a hierarchy, but mitigation, you know, uh, justice and adaptation to nature-based solutions. And so in terms of mitigation, so um, real emissions reduction, um, the first one on the list in no particular order, um, because these don't, in the the order that they're in, don't actually reflect the contributions Mm -hmm. of these sectors to emissions, you know, because just to note that um, uh, agriculture is New Zealand's number one emitter and um, polluter and um, and in particular of those superheating gases methane and nitrous oxide so um, worst worst and uh, so these these don't reflect that order but so the first one is to end new oil and gas and coal exploration on land and at sea and to commit to the Port Vila call for a fossil fuel free Pacific and so you know we, we got part of the way there with the um, Labor government in the previous term uh, in that new oil and gas exploration at sea was banned. Um, but the, as I mentioned, the National Party um, is saying that they will uh, rescind that ban um, if they get back in. And the Labor Party is staying silent about various other elements of oil and gas exploration. Yeah, and so some- honestly, at this point, I don't trust them to follow search with, the, with National, right? Like, if, if they think it's expedient to do so. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a lot at risk there. You know, um, the gains that we have made, as inadequate as they are, uh, are at risk. And yet we need real commitment, real vision that, um, that locks this stuff in for the future. There is no future in more oil and gas and coal exploration, you know, not just here, but within, within, uh, in the whole, on the whole planet. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that's that one. The second one is about renewable energy. Um, and, and I think, you know, like we're already at about 98% renewable energy in New Zealand, um, but that has to be sustainable and it has to be community owned. And, you know, we've seen with the privatisation of the renewable energy system uh, that that has led to profiteering, um, a whole lot of um, 
gaming of the system. So, you know, there are permitted wind farms that haven't been built because it's in the energy company's interests to rely on um, expensive, you know, to control the prices. Yeah. Um, so that's why it's really important that um, new systems are distributed. Um, and, you know, I, I think about my own solar panels and the advantage that that brings to me in terms of, like, being sovereign. And given electricity prices, they're just going to keep going up and, you know, like there's not the investment that's needed in the lines, networks and all the rest of it so that people can have reliable and affordable um, energy. Also, because, investment is part of a problem with the privatisation as well, right? Like, that's right. We're in so much of infrastructure, like money, they're just not putting money back into it. It yeah, goes yeah, somewhere else. No, yeah, yeah. But, you know, why, why put money into maintaining the asset if you can pay it off and dividend to your shareholders and those shareholders have got an interest in that um and so that's why public and locally owned nature-friendly renewable electricity is important and we see that being achieved by grants um and you know both in sort of uh, in terms of household but also community-owned infrastructure yeah so that's number two i just want to it's been mentioned twice now um and, and i think it's something that doesn't often come up um, in kind of wider discourse, and that's this idea of just transition. I like We've talked about it on the podcast, and I think some of the audience will have a, a reasonable idea about that, but this is, a, again, one of those arguments that are, that are made by um, conservatives or, or radical right-wingers is, oh, if you uh, get rid of these things, you, uh, these people are going to lose their jobs. They're going to ruin the economy. Um, and a just transition is exactly the way, like, that's the answer to that, right? Like, I, I don't think anyone believes that there isn't a period of uh, transformation here. Yeah, and um, it needs to be managed. I think there's a risk uh, that just transition is used as a reason to not take the timely action that's needed. Um, so, again, we need to look out for subversion of some of these things. Um, but, you know, I'm sure the slave traders also said that um, that abolition couldn't happen because... Um, you know, jobs might be lost and it might have an economic impact. I mean, it absolutely would have. And and with a lot of kind of out-of-date systems or products or industries that someone makes money out of, Yeah. Um, this is going to be the case. Yeah, and, like, follow the money. You know, who's saying this and what are their vested interests in saying it? You know, yeah. jobs might be lost. Yeah, jobs might be lost, but you know what? Lives might be lost. Lives are being lost because of climate change. And, you know, like toxins and all these other things that, you know, industry has always resisted change because they're protecting their privilege. And that's no reason to take, not to take action to protect the broader public good and to, you know, enable life on earth to continue. <laughs> Who could have guessed? Yeah. So the next one is um, a transition in the way that we uh, build and plan communities. Yeah. And, you know, this is so important uh, because, the way um, structural forces lock people into um, patterns of behaviour, mm -hmm. and um, and it, it's just so obvious with um, urban form and uh, infrastructure, especially transport infrastructure. You know, so it locks particularly poor people into. You mean car infrastructure? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because it's, it's significantly about. different, right? It's a significantly different set of designs to one that puts pedestrians or um, yeah. mass public transport at the forefront. Yeah, that's right. You know, I, and again, it's that sort of neoliberal, um, individualistic 
you know, um, and, and so much cultural baggage associated with, you know, every person owning a car or two, you know, and the, um, the, the stuff that goes with that. Um, and so, and the way that, um, that roads shape uh, how people get about, but also the quality of life for people, the amount of time that they have, um, and, uh, you know, uh, and also, like, it, it, it's, a, it's a circular process because it, it shapes and is shaped by, you know. So, um, you know, if with car-centric urban development, people, people don't have options. And if they don't have options, then they're locked into the system of working really hard just so that they can get to work, you know. <laughs> um, so it's really important that um, the current priority is inverted so that um, there's more money being spent on walking and cycling and free and accessible public transport than there is on um, the on, on just getting cars from A to B. And, you know, we also need to be wary about the um, false solutions of things like electric vehicles, you know, that drive literally, um, you know, seabed mining and... Yeah. Um, and and with it, you know, like people people are trying to do the right thing, but they're hoodwinked into believing that it'll all be all right if everybody drives an EV. And um, without what are those realizing... EVs made of? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you what know? does it do to the communities that are bisected by ever bigger motorways yeah. or ecosystems or you know what are tires? Yeah, yeah, brake linings that make their way into our shallow estuarine receiving yeah. environment. And it, it still requires the infrastructure, right? And that's somehow become like one of the only election issues being talked about is this pothole stuff. And yeah. the outcome of that would just be this constant one-way drain of funds from you know the public and the state towards infrastructure maintenance that we shouldn't be using. Yeah, Yeah, that particular type of infrastructure. And the worrying thing is that I'm sure that National got a boost in the polls when they announced this pothole fund, you know. Because it's it's something that people deal with every day. You know, it's like, oh, my car got dinked. Yeah, and um, never mind that there are more potholes because of climate change, you know, and the increased rainfall and landslides and all the rest of it. So, again, um, you know, it's a lack of, um, attention to the drivers again of um, of these problems. So need to address that. And you know, it's been really disappointing to see the Labor government um, with their um, subsidies for fuel, um, like with the, the fuel tax rebate, um, and that you know something that really could have made a difference to behaviour change um, uh, that they didn't um, extend, um, and that was the provision of free fares, you know, like they, okay, we had half price fares and um, that that was great. It made a difference. I, I know that, especially post-COVID when people were um, wary about using public transport. But, um, you know, if they're really going to make a difference to the cost of living, then they could have, uh, you know, in a, in a um, environmentally responsible way, then they could have extended the, the half price fares to free fares for everybody. Yeah, and they get in this loop as well, right, which is, is very convenient. Uh, which is to say not enough people are using it, so we can't invest <laughs> in it. And then, oh, we can't invest in it because not enough people are, yeah. ha- have uptake. And you're, yeah, oh, we, we can't and we can't make it free um, because there's no there's no infrastructure. Like, okay. <laughs> like, yeah. at some point you have to change the way you're approaching that at the baseline. 
Yeah, and when you think about the fact that um, so much of our um, public transport has been privatised and um, so at the moment we're paying for that in our taxes, in our rates and in our passenger transport fares. And so that's this massive transfer of money going to these investment and um, pension funds offshore. Yeah. You know, that, that, that's a massive loss of New Zealand earnings. So, you know, there's a real justice issue in that consideration as well. And we'll keep coming back to that because a lot of this just comes down to, to justice as much as anything else. Yeah. Um, it's, it's taking the extractivism past just mineral extraction, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, so the next one, we do get to dairy, um, and it's it's transitioning away uh, once again. Yeah, so um, this is about transitioning intensive dairying to low emissions farming. So that's plant-based, regenerative, organic farming that works with nature by phasing out the drivers of intensive dairying, which is synthetic nitrogen fertilizer and imported animal feed. So that's palm kernel expeller from Southeast Asian rainforests, but also soy from Amazonian rainforests. And um, these are horrifically environmentally destructive to, yeah. to harvest. On, on um, all levels, you know, so if you think about intensive dairying and what that's doing to New Zealand, the New Zealand environment, you know, 98% of our freshwater bodies are now polluted on at least one indicator. Um, it's causing public health hazards because nitrate contamination is getting into people, rural people's drinking water. Oh, I mean, um, it's all through Auckland as well, apparently. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the that's right. Yeah, yeah, it's shocking. Synthetic nitrogen fertiliser um, creates more emissions in New Zealand than domestic aviation. Excuse me? <laughs> yeah. So it's a massive polluter in its own right. And then also it's driving uh, these huge dairy herds because the herds are bigger than the land can naturally sustain. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's pumping all this grass and winter fodder crops. Um, and and then it's also because even that in itself isn't enough, even though that's increased seven hundred percent in the last thirty years, um, and it, you know generates the methane and the nitrous oxide emissions both directly and through the uh, enteric fermentation in the cows, um, and then because that's still not enough, we're importing we're the world's biggest importer of imported feed to feed we're the world's cows biggest of PKE. That's horrific because that's. That's very well known as like being like some of the worst environmental environmentally yeah. destructive like product. Yeah, and so and um, they could feed them something else, right? Well, they could lower the dairy herd, you know, and <laughs> and so actually, there's a lot of research that shows with um, less synthetic nitrogen fertilizer and less imported feed um, that you could, that these guys uh, the farming system could still support increased product you know, the same levels of productivity and profitability. And because it's ch it's sort of chasing marginal returns, um, you know, but they've been led to believe that, you know, put on more fertiliser and more imported feed and, you know, have more cows, but actually that just lops them into the... Yeah, it's um, diminishing as well, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So, I mean, there is an issue with this that, uh, you know, it's a systemic problem because you can reduce the imported feed and the synthetic nitrogen fertiliser, but there's an expectation that the cows then um, just should produce more milk and they're driving that through genetics. And so, you know, have a spare of thought for the cows. You know, not only do they have their calves taken from them at birth and two million of them are killed every year, um, these bobby calves and then another two or so million cows because, you know, they're not producing enough milk. 
But, um, you know, the fact that they have to carry this burden of um, huge lactation demand and what that does for the cows themselves. Um, so, you know, that that's really um, indefensible. And then, of course, it's supported by these huge large-scale irrigation schemes that the national government, uh, you know, changed laws, changed political systems. I'm still stunned that none of this, like with the stuff around ECAN, like yeah. none of it became a, a serious issue because it was some of the worst anti-democratic legislation, I guess, yeah. decisions that have been made in the last couple of decades. It's incredible, you know, and, and given the vested interests of people like Wyatt Creech and others who, you know, had direct investments in... Courager, right, dairy. as well. What's that? Uh, Barbara Courager now. Yeah, as oh, well. yeah, yeah, that's shocking, eh, you know. Like, how much conflict of interest can you have and still still be an MP, you know? Mm-hmm. It's shocking. So, um, and given, like I mentioned, that Big Dairy is New Zealand's biggest climate polluter, as well as polluting our rivers, our fresh water, um, destroying biodiversity, um, you know, like, how come these guys still get knighthoods? How come these guys get away with it? And and that New Zealanders, you know, we, like we've found this Big Dairy campaign quite challenging because New Zealanders just keep putting up with, uh, you know, because of the sacred nature, it's really hard to challenge the big dairy privilege and its effects. Look, I'm going to get my $20 block of cheese <laughs> it's the last thing I do on earth. Yeah, well, and you that's know, the thing. It's not New even Zealanders good. Can't, yeah, New Zealanders can't even afford to buy dairy. So the next one, I guess, ties all of that together, um, and it's to do with the, the legislative uh, side of the stuff. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating that... Um, you know, uh, like, you know, we had our Prime Minister when she was still there, Jacinda Ardern, going around the world talking about, you know, we we're going to be the first country in the world to price dairy and, um, you know, or agriculture and, you know, that we've got this world standard emissions trading scheme and all the rest of it. But, you know, dairy, it continues to be exempt. Uh, there are so many loopholes in that, um, you know, the some of the country's biggest polluters get free emissions units credits to pollute and the government this year is considering giving Fonterra even more and and then there were decisions from the government for example exempting the resource management act from and um, those who apply the resource management act from having to consider climate change in land use decisions oh that's just so we can build shitty houses (laughs) (laughs) well maybe yeah you know a lot of lot of shitty shit you know (laughs) You know, like, and, and it's really unjust again because when you think about Glenbrook Steel Mill, um, you know, the, the Minister, uh, Environment Minister Parker could have um, required Glenbrook Steel Mill to consider climate change um, in some of their consent processes and um, exempt the, exempted them and then recently gave them, you know, millions of dollars to... 140? 140 million-ish? Yeah, yeah, it was it was a huge amount, you know. I mean, man, imagine imagine the quality of life that you could improve With, for everyday New Zealand. And not alone either. Like, yeah, that's it, right. Just have some free money. Yeah, no requirements on it. Not a, not alone. Didn't take any shares. Didn't take partial ownership. Yeah, just just gave them the money. Yeah, you know, I wish. And, and- I know. It's critical opportunities like this. I mean, we've seen that with the Obama government, you know, during the global financial crisis, bailing out car, the car industry without any provisos, you know. And so we've got this again here. You know, they could have um, had regulations 
to enforce um, this change, but instead they they exempt the polluters from the regulations and then give them a shitload of money, our money, to do stuff that they should have done anyway. Yeah. And um, and actually, as we speak, um, Fonterra and the government are apparently making an announcement. Um, we don't know the details and we're keeping an eye on it, but um, we suspect that it's something along those lines, you know, because we saw that after the Glenbrook steel mill um, concessions, Fonterra saying, oh, well, we'll have some of that. You know, we'll carbon- decarbonise our process heat if you give us the money too. Meanwhile, yeah. they posted half a billion dollars profit at their second quarterly reports. Uh, um, I guess they're uh, going to be looking at a name change or some other rebranding asset like like Countdown is. Yeah, yeah, a bit more greenwashing. <laughs> it's it's horrific, right? Um, these kind of double standards around cost and the economics of it. I, I remember with the steel mill, uh, James Shaw was trying to sell it as a big win. And, you know, it, it's just stunning to me that, you know, this is the first green uh, climate minister. And I think at the latest round of climate talks end of last year, he, he ends up getting a fossil of the day because yeah. he's, he's having to run out these policies completely uh, tied to the Labour legislative kind of framework. He, like, say, say what you will about his um, his attempt or, like, his willingness to really push this stuff, but he, I, I will accept that he cannot make the changes even that he wants to the extent that the ETS is just nothing. Like, it, it's worse than nothing. Um, yeah. And the world understands that. Like, the people watching globally understand how bad that is. It's incredible, eh? It's so cynical. And and it's the same with, um, you know, unfortunately with Jacinda Ardern going around the world and saying how Mm -hmm. great we were on the climate. And I think it's dangerous because it breeds cynicism and despair. Yeah. And then how do you get people on board, right? Yeah. Like, oh, but you said you are going to do that, and then you just didn't. You just gave all this money to these polluters. So why why should we trust you on this? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think the next section is, uh, I mean, all of this is important, but the next section is one which is maybe easier to get public buy-in for, um, and that's supporting frontline communities. Do you want to speak about that a little bit just in the the generic? Yeah. um, You know, people, people are increasingly being affected by climate change and they need support. Um, So it's intuitive that we... We need to support them. We need governments to support them, um, even though this is at the end of the pipeline rather, rather than at the cause of the problem. Um, and and even then, it's really problematic. You know, my um, past experience when I was an elected um, local and regional councillor um, on, on the, in this rural district, which is 46% of the Auckland region on the outskirts of Auckland, you know, we would say, uh, actually, we need to put notations on on um, land information memoranda and things like that, saying that, you know, this is a flood zone and this is going to suffer in the future, coastal inundation or rivers or whatever. And, you know, because of that private property privilege and power, um, it was very hard to do so. And yet those are the same people that are affected by these events and then need a bailout afterwards. And um, nobody would deny that, you know, support is needed but, uh, you know, so but we also need to make room for rivers to flood safely and to get the infrastructure and the, the, the intensive farming and the, the houses out of those floodplains so that they can flood and that they can absorb 
the floodwaters the way they used to. And yet, um, you know, there is this other side of the picture, and that is that, you know, countries in the Pacific um, who have already suffered from colonisation and capitalism are going to be even worse affected by climate change. And so um, as colonial powers um, and, you know, beneficiaries in the global north um, of so much of this, we have a real responsibility to our Pacific allies to reduce emissions and climate change impacts, but also to address them when they happen, which they increasingly are. Because we're already getting climate refugees, aren't we? Yeah. That's already a thing that's happening, and the Pacific is at major risk of that because of the uh, lack of investment over the last you know, 200 years, the in- inability or and unwillingness of you know, countries like New Zealand and Australia to provide pathways for, for immigrants, for, for refugees uh, from the Pacific. There's this whole range of just really deeply unjust historical context to this stuff that is going to make it so much worse in the next decade. Yeah, and we want to we want to use them for their cheap labour and, um, you know, we want to go over there and, you know, fly over there and have our holidays in the sun. But, you know, it's it's a real exploitative relationship. And yet when it comes to addressing our impacts upon them, you know, like we'll do it for greenwashing or to offset our um, emissions instead of really reducing emissions. But it's increasingly an issue and it's a social justice issue and an environmental justice issue. How, how we talk to the electorate about this kind of stuff? Um, what kind of initiatives are there out there uh, to help people understand the the direct impacts of these things around them if they're not uh, part of that population to begin with? Yeah, I think building those relationships, you know, by organisations such as Greenpeace are really important. Um, <clears throat> not just Greenpeace, but, you know, Oxfam obviously, you know, has a real, as one of the allies in this Climate Shift Coalition um, they're doing a lot of work in that space um, and we do a lot of work in that space um, with a whole lot of environmental issues whether it's deep sea mining or plastics or overfishing um, and at the same time you know we have to be really careful not to be uh, you know not not to use these communities ourselves so it has to be authentic and we have to elevate their voices and and given the you know significant population of Pacifica people in New Zealand, you know, these relationships are very real. Um, but, of course, you know, a lot of those populations are disempowered as part of this structural framework. So, you know, it, it's challenging because with the increase in inequality and wealth disparity um, and almost a sort of fortress mentality where um, those who can are like, well, yeah, I'll just build some seawalls around my coastal property, um, but you cannot... Yeah, put some cannons on it, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like this is a, this is a thing, right? Like this is this is one of the end outcomes, like the, the really bad ones. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, uh, yeah. a lot of these communities were affected um, throughout Auckland, especially, and we saw some fantastic responses from our local representatives and the communities themselves. But you know, this was our first real brush with it this year, where we had like su- successive major weather events. And it's, you know, as you said, even just out your way, there are a hundred families or people who hundred families. Yeah, yeah. Who, who are still impacted by that. We don't we already are struggling to provide the resource and the relocation at a at a state level. Yeah. 
you know, when you think about the billions of dollars that it's going to cost just for this year's event, you know, like it, it's so significant. And um, given the sort of middle electorate's um, reluctance to pay for anything, <laughs> um, you know, the so called the so called middle electorate. Yeah, <laughs> you know, so that's why we're already seeing our, our social, uh, health, transport, environmental infrastructure, you know, crumbling. You know, I, I get a sense that the heyday of actually investing in New Zealand has passed. You know, like maybe it was during. Maybe it was even during the Think Big era, you know, because at least they built built stuff, uh-huh. um, you know. But uh, you know, the social interventions of previous Labor governments, you know, in the in the like thirties and in the late sixties, early seventies. But you know, that that era seems to have passed, and mm-hmm. now all we're doing is building really big motorways. Yeah, and there's diminishing returns as well, right? Like it takes more money out, and you there's less to put in. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I guess just one last question I have about this section before we move on to the last one is how do you engage people on the stuff? And I guess on the the earlier section as well around um, climate transition uh, without um, kind of tapping into the, the fair response, without without going negative. Yeah, it is really challenging. And I think as campaigners, we struggle with that even in our personal lives. But... I think that, you know, at core, they're, you know, people are empathetic and they are concerned about their future and their children's and grandchildren's future. And, uh, you know, I mean, it is easy to be disempowered, but uh, people power, you know, the power of the collective and um, the sense of justice that, you know, we have inherently can and does motivate people. And I think, you know, that's why we're really lucky in Greenpeace that, you know, we, we're in a position to to flex political muscle in a way that is inspiring and courageous. And, um, you know, that's what we're known for. And so that's really important. And the earth is worth fighting for, you know. And, uh, you know, I guess there'll be some people that, you know, just disengage because that's, like that's quite a reasonable response for some people, you know, because you've got to look after your, your mental health and stuff. But um, at the same time, there are people who are even more motivated. And we're seeing that with younger generations too, you know. I mean, it's their future that's being squandered. And the opportunity, you know, that many of us, you know, like I think about the life that I had, you know, sure there were existential threats, nuclear war and, you know, um, species extinctions and, and that that. You know, man, as a kid, I lay awake at night thinking about that stuff. And I'm sure that, that uh, kids these days lie awake thinking about it. But, you know, they're not going to take it lying down. And uh, and so it's giving people opportunities to be efficacious and to shine a light and to be be leading lights on this stuff. And um, there is still hope. And there are plenty of examples in the world where we have had wins and we have turned things around and nature is resilient and we just need to give it space and give it that opportunity and not give up. Which brings us well to the last section, which is restoring and rewilding. And I guess this is kind of looking at the vision of uh, the future uh, that, that Climate Shift hopes to portray. Yeah, nature is our greatest ally in all of this. Um, you know, so well-functioning forests, 
and um, oceans and wetlands and estuary, you know, they they're a massive climate, uh, massive carbon sinks for a start. You know, and you know we're in a climate and biodiversity crisis, um, but it, and so that's what's under threat. But at the same time, these are what can re- they really embody the hope for the future? Um, and uh, you know, because they're they're so massive, and you know, when you think about the ocean's capacity um, for for keeping the climate cool and for sequestering carbon, and that's why you know we have to really preserve. I mean both because they are such sources of inspiration and wonder and um, so many other values, but also because they have this really functional value. Um, Making away and- billionaires. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so-, so there are three parts to this one, and it, I guess it, it covers uh, three different uh, ecosystems. Um, so the first one is the uh, the forests, um, particularly here um, in New Zealand, which, you know, in the an age where so much of that has been, you know, historically destroyed um, and then replanted as as pine. Um, what's, what's the goal with that? Yeah, I think this is a really important question because, you know, at the moment the government is um, committed to offsetting, instead of reducing emissions, they're committed to offsetting those emissions by supporting um, forestry elsewhere in the world. And, um, and similarly, uh, countries and companies overseas want to offset their emissions by planting pine forests here in New Zealand. And yet we've got, you know, still a third of the country is in native forest, uh, but it's being diminished because of introduced species, you know, browsing pests, deer and goats and possums. But by effectively controlling those introduced pests, um, you know, we can, um, you know, like the capacity for carbon sequestration and biodiversity restoration is massive. So, like, never mind the, you know, the whole idea of, like, create pollution and then offset it somewhere else in the world um, and all the problems that are associated with that, of which there are many. A forestry slash was a big one recently, right? Yeah, forestry slash, you know, um, double counting, the fact that those countries might like to preserve their own forests or replant forests to offset their own emission. Um, you know, that these are not, Necessarily permanent, um, you know. There, there are so many issues with forestry offsets, um, and and especially while we ignore the needs, potential, and capacity of our own indigenous forests to sequester sequester carbon and to be host to you know the myriad of amazing species that we have only here in New Zealand. And that's all really like that's all fun stuff, right? <laughs> like that's, yeah. that's something I'd love to have more of. Yeah, yeah. I mean. It's a, it's a, you know, everybody wins. So, um, you know, like you would think that would be an easy win from the government. So that's that one, um, and that also relates really to the to number ten. So I'm just going to come back to the number nine, which is the ocean. But number ten is about wetlands and estuary. And again, you know, like there's this triple whammy for protecting and restoring wetlands. We've got like about one percent of our original wetlands left. Um, you know, it's all been drained. You know, what, I didn't realize it was quite that bad. Yeah, it's massive. So it was, it's this thing about farmed farmed wetland, you know, presented as if they're wet farmland. And so it's it, it, what is an opportunity is actually presented as a problem because of that economic and extractive mm-hmm. lens. And um, yet the role of wetlands and estuaries, which actually can sequester, sequester more carbon um, than even terrestrial forest ecosystem. And so that's things like mangroves and, um, you know, because they're, they're just so biodiverse. So 
really important functions and not just in sequestering carbon, but also in preventing the the power of storm events. So they they both um, absorb uh, um, siltation and sediment, so that's really important for our ocean ecosystem, but they also blow down floodwaters and release them over time. You know, so they're like, they, they perform this cleaning function, they perform a flood mitigation function, and they're really important biodiversity hosts. So, you know, they're, they're just everything about estuaries and, and wetlands is good, and we've got to stop trashing them. We've got to restore those that we've lost, and, um, you know, and everybody, again, wins from those as well. I remember there's a really fantastic campaign uh, in the old Waitakere city around re-wetlanding. Um, around rivers. So this is like yeah. 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah, and that's right. You know, um, the Waitakere City Council bought houses that were in floodplains and enabled those floodplains to function as they should. And they're really amazing now, you know, like they have cycleways along them and they mm-hmm. have, you know, paharakeke, um, um, you know, so people can do cultural harvest and, and you know, like if that, if that, uh, managed retreat that happened in Waitakere City hadn't occurred, then the disastrous effects of Cyclone Gabriel would have been even worse. Mm. So, you know, they're really living examples of the benefits of that that were done in the past. And the last ecosystem, uh, the number ocean. Number 10. Uh, sorry, number nine. Yeah, number so nine. ocean. <laughs> yeah, go backwards. Um, again, you know, the role of oceans in carbon sequestration uh, is really important, um, but bottom trawling and this policy talks about restoring um, – Preserving the ocean's crucial role in storing carbon by shifting to ecosystem-based fisheries instead of just like taking everything out, like recognising that these are integrated and um, finely balanced systems that rely on each other, um, you know, where the, the fish and the vegetation and healthy oceans, it, it's all a complete package. Um, but that requires ending bottom trawling because bottom trawling is so destructive. It's so crazy um, that it still exists. Yeah, it, it is like it. It just, it just sucks as a as, yeah. as a practice. Like it's not good. Like no, it's, it's so indiscriminate. You know, at both for the fisheries, for the fish themselves, but also you know these thousands and thousands of years old coral. Yeah. And um, you know, I mean, some of this it, coral was around before Jesus was born, and it's being pulled up and destroyed, and then chucked back over. Yeah, over and this over. is the thing: so much just gets chucked away. Yeah, you know, um, there's research done by the University of Auckland that showed for every fish that's used, um, two other fish are chucked out, um, and and that that's just through conventional fishing methods. That's not even bottom the, the impacts of bottom trawling, and so bottom trawling um, is really negative obviously for the ecosystem itself, but also for climate change. And then that overfishing also creates, um, you know, this marine degradation. And that's why we end up with these kinna barrens where all that is there is kinna and no kelp forests and um, which provide habitat, but they're also really important in the carbon cycle. So, um, you know, we need to we need to see oceans as a really important response to climate change as well. It's always stunning to me how many of the responsibilities are, oh, it's so complex, it's so hard. No, just ban this one thing and it would have an immediate, like, yeah. powerful impact. Yeah, and, you know, we know that um, uh, it's around 80% of New Zealanders want to see bottom trawling banned. So That's like, huge. What's stopping the government? Oh, industry power. Oh, how does the industry have power? 
because, like, they've got access to the halls of power. You know, I mean, it's that regulatory capture that we see across industries in New Zealand. I've been saying this every episode lately, uh, but the public is so progressive compared to the people at the top at this point. Yeah. We're really yeah. reaching a crunch point. Um, and on some of the, like, Climate in particular is a huge one. People are looking at this and saying, well, my house just got washed away, yeah. you know, like all my friend's house. And, you know, New Zealand is small enough uh, as a community that almost everyone here will know someone that was impacted by the weather yeah. events in the first half of the year, like almost without a doubt. That's right. Uh, and that's why we need to make this a climate election. We need a climate shift and we need all party to support real emissions reductions to support frontline communities and to restore and rewild nature. And how can people get involved with that? Um, sign on to our petition, uh, which is... I'll, I'll chuck a link in the description for oh, people to... Oh, great. Cool. Thanks. Yes. So sign on to Climate Shift, um, you know, like sign the petition, but also join um, mobilisation in your communities to hold politicians, political parties to account, um, go along to election meetings and ask them about climate shift and what they're doing about the climate Make sure climate's on the agenda because, you know, we've only got this election and one more election before 2030, which is really crunch time for the climate. So make this election count and demand real action from political parties. Have you got any events coming up uh, for Climate Shift as well that people can... Uh, we, do, we do. We um, do. And working with our allies in the movement, there'll be a number of things happening. So um, uh, it's not... We don't have a live tab on the Climate Shift website yet, but there will be um, a list of events that people can take part in and things that people can do. We're going to have stickers that people can send out or stick around the place calling for a climate shift. We're going to have posters. Uh, we're going to have a range of actions, um, events and things um, across the movement that people can take part in. So, you know, get active. Get angry. I'm yeah. already angry. Um, and I'm sure many of our <laughs> listeners are as well. But let's channel that. And thank you so much for joining us today, Christine. Cool. Thanks for the opportunity. That's been another episode. Uh, we were joined by Christine Rose from Greenpeace Aotearoa to talk about the Climate Shift campaign. I put that link in the description. So go click it, sign it, um, keep an eye on what's happening in the space, go and talk to your local reps, and let's try and get this at the forefront of the election campaign because it's nothing else at the moment. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm pretty keen not to have an election that's decided by who is toughest on crime and potholes. Um, and I'm sure none of our listeners really want that either. Let's let's see some in- exciting um, policies that actually make you feel like you want to get out and vote. We'll have another episode for you on the weekend for current events. Uh, if you've enjoyed this, share it. Um, head over to our Patreon. Uh, let people know uh, what's happening in left-wing indie media. I'll catch you in a few days. See you later. Amongst the people every day In this vindictive, forgetful fucking rain It feels like we're